This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with award-winning Australian climate scientist, Dr. Joelle Gerges. Joelle joined me to speak in depth about her new book, Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. It's my absolute delight and pleasure to welcome onto the program, Dr. Joelle Gerges. Joelle is a climate scientist and writer at the Australian National University. She served as a lead author for the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report and is also an author of a couple of books. Her previous book is called Sunburned Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. And the book that we'll be discussing today is called Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. And Joelle has uh, written this as a personal call to action on this issue of climate change more broadly, but certainly this book is taking a great focus on the IPCC report and what that science is telling us. And Joelle is distilling that for us. We will get into that, but also a whole lot more in this conversation. So I want to say a big warm welcome to you, Joelle, and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Amy. Thanks for having me. Now, I think a lot of people often wonder, you know, who are these people we talk about who are climate scientists? Because, you know, we have had these climate wars and raging debates and a lot of that has played out in the news, on the radio. We've had this very long-running debate about how much is human-induced emissions contributing to global warming and the effects that we're seeing. Thankfully, it seems that we've shifted out of that circular argument and debate that seemed pretty futile to the people who were heavily grounded in the science. But I wonder, could you reflect for us as a climate scientist on your journey through these debates? Because it seems that throughout this book, dealing with and working in the sphere of climate science is quite fraught in an emotional sense, in a sense that the hard scientific work that you're doing has been put up for debate. Although science is about being rigorous and having these debates within the community, it seems to have been so much more amplified by vested interests and politicians. So I just wondered if we could start out with that big picture reflection on how you've been experiencing this public discussion on climate science and climate change throughout your time already as a climate scientist here in Australia. Yeah, sure. So I guess most of my career, I've just been a research scientist, chipping away, working on different problems to understand how the climate is changing both here in Australia. And my work's also focused on understanding some big picture changes in the Southern Hemisphere. So in the past, we were just doing our work and not really thinking too much about it. But I guess in recent years, we started to see a lot of these climate extremes starting to spring to life right outside our window. And I guess for a lot of us, we've been drawn into a lot of political debates about the implications of our work. And certainly, as I uh, was selected as a, a lead author for the IPCC, it was this extraordinary opportunity to see how the world was changing, not just here in Australia, but all over the, the, the planet. And so it was this real zoom out and an opportunity to see just how much we've altered the planet. And so for my work, I guess I've seen things ramp up in recent years and it's been one of these situations where the, the politicisation of our science has been really unfortunate uh, because it's really detracted from the conversation that we need to have, which is we really need to address the problem. And so now the latest IPCC 
assessment report, the volume I was involved in was over a million words. So we have more than enough science in terms of understanding the problem, but the, the, the situation now is such that we don't really need any more information about the nuts and bolts of the science because we know enough about it. So what we now need to do is really get the political response, which is a, an entirely different, I guess, sphere that a lot of scientists um, aren't always that comfortable working in. And that's the realm of political discussion and debate. And that sometimes can be, can be quite challenging. Indeed. And public communication of the science is something that's very important. And you raise that in the book saying that often when these reports come out, they're given this kind of cursory attention. So you would have a, you know, a brief segment on a radio breakfast show or a news show, but there are kind of these rare opportunities for scientists and science communicators to be able to delve deeply into these issues. And it seems that that's one of the reasons why you've delved into writing such a book like this, which does take us through the science in such a helpful way. And I wondered, were there other motivations for writing this book as well, in addition to those clear, pragmatic considerations? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I think Primarily, the motivation for the book was really when I was working on the IPCC report and realising just how bad the situation was. So I think for a lot of people, they do see a snippet maybe on the television or they hear something on the radio or they might read something online. But really to get a, a really clear sense of things, you really have to delve very, very deeply into what is sometimes very technical science. And so first and foremost, I, I really felt like because I had this privileged position of having a seat at the table working on this UN process, and I really felt like the average person really, really needs to understand just how bad the situation is, uh, but also the options available to us. So the first thing we need to know is, well, how urgent is the problem? And it turns out it's extremely urgent. And here in Australia, we've also seen all these extremes starting to play out. And so I think the lived experience of climate change is now something that we can no longer really afford to, to ignore. And so I guess for me, the book is this blend of trying to distill the science in the most simplest terms I could possibly manage while not dumbing it down. But there is a lot of technical science in there. But you, you don't need to be a scientist to read this book because I don't want scientists reading this book because they already know what the problem is. Right. So we really need to to try and humanize this debate and rehumanize the, the conversation about climate change. So it's not just about uh, numbers on a graph. It's actually about the people and the places that we love. And so for me, part of it was, I guess, educational in the sense that I wanted to convey the very urgent science out to, to the public. But for me, it was also part memoir. So I guess it was the snapshot of, my, of this moment in time, this extraordinary opportunity that I've had um, to work at the UN level, but also just seeing the world change in very personal ways for me, really seeing the East Coast flooding of Australia earlier this year really hit home for me because my husband's family is from Lismore. We had family displaced in those floods. And it was this real reminder that climate change is just barreling through our front door. We're not prepared and we really need to do something about it. And I think the average person is aware of that. I think the black summer bushfires of 2019, 2020 we're also a really major wake-up call. We saw 25% of Australia's temperate forests burn in a single bushfire season. And now the koala, which is our most iconic mammal, is actually being listed as an endangered species on the East Coast. And koalas could become extinct in New South Wales within the next 30 years. So 
that is an extraordinary thing to take in. And so as an Australian scientist working on the IPCC report, I could effectively see the science springing to life. And so for me, writing that book was a way of also just emotionally processing the information because it is a lot to take in and it can be really distressing at times. And as much as I guess I, uh, you know, compartmentalize the work that I do in a sense. Many of us do. We we operate on this sort of rational, logical level. But then sometimes later on in the evenings or on the weekends or at other times, these other feelings would really upwell in me. And I guess writing my way through it was was a way of me processing this. And I think it's something that a lot of people can appreciate that they can see that the world is changing around them and it is really distressing. And what do we do? And so I guess my book is is one climate scientist guide uh, through that process of, of how I come to terms with really understanding that we're at this pivotal moment in human history and really what we do right now and in the next decade really will determine the future course of humanity. Well, I loved and appreciated the personal reflections that you included in the book that clearly were part of some journal entries that you'd been making at the time when you were thinking of these issues, especially during writing this IPCC sixth assessment report. But before we jump into the science, which I really found fascinating and also obviously disturbing, I wanted to just dwell a little bit on the process for the IPCC report because you do outline it. And I think it's something that most people would not truly appreciate until they've heard your firsthand account of it, especially given, which I had no idea that this was the case, that you are all volunteers. Working already as a a lecturer, university lecturer, a climate scientist, and then also taking on such a huge project as a lead author on that sixth assessment report, I wonder if you could share just how involved that process was for you. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for the question, because I think sometimes people don't fully appreciate what's involved. So firstly, there were about a thousand nominations put forward from different governments around the world in terms of putting forward their regional experts. And then from that list, around about 240 scientists were selected from, I think it's 66 different countries. And here in Australia, there were 12 of us that were selected to represent um, our region. So firstly, we have to have a very extensive background in scientific research and have contributed a lot to the the literature in terms of publishing our studies. So it's something you can't do, obviously, if you've only been in the field for a short period of time. We're looking for people with a very deep expertise in their their regions. And so so it's quite a big uh, thing to actually get a seat at the table. And then from there, we are charged with the task of reading all of the different scientific studies that have come out since the fifth assessment report, which was released in 2013. And so I think for for volume one, it was over 14,000 different peer-reviewed articles. And then we're distilling those down into chapters, which are about 80,000 words each. And there were 13 chapters for volume one. So you're looking at at a report that's well in excess of a million words. And that doesn't include appendices, computer code, glossary, all sorts of other technical appendices. So it is this massive process. And then think of it as the mother of all group assignments, if if that helps. And then that actually goes out to uh, expert and government review several times. And in the end, we had around 74,000 different reviewer comments that we had to address. 
revise the text and also provide publicly accessible database our response to how we change the text. So every single line of this report is agonised over, not just by the chapter teams themselves, but also other experts from the area to make sure that we are clearly and accurately representing our science as precisely as possible. And that is a huge, huge task. And as you mentioned, none of us get paid to do this. It's purely voluntary. But obviously, we're we're all very compelled to do this because we care about the science and we care about the future of the planet. So, you know, in terms of, you know, really thinking about the, the altruism involved in that, I mean, for me, it was an extraordinary life experience to be in a room full of people who are really doing everything they possibly can to uh, contribute their expertise and knowledge and time to this this extraordinary process. So it was enormous and it is enormous. And I think most people sometimes don't appreciate that this also happened during the coronavirus pandemic. So the first three meetings were held in person, which was was good because we're all in the same room. And when you're dealing with when you're dealing with a UN process, the time zones, as you might imagine, Mm. Um, are huge. And and for my chapter alone, we had people from Colombia and Pakistan and Russia, China, France, New Zealand. So trying to get everybody on the same call was very, very, very difficult. But when coronavirus hit, we had to convert online to be able to continue our work. And that sometimes meant meetings might be held at 5am on a Saturday morning for me, or 3am on a Wednesday morning. Sometimes it would be six o'clock on a Friday night. It would all depend. And it was, it was very challenging. And so it's worth talking about those things because it, it really does give a sense of, of just how deeply all these scientists involved in the process really care about this process. And really, we, we worked around the clock to produce the most thorough uh, climate change assessment that was humanly possible. It sounds exceptionally rigorous and transparent, which is wonderful. And um, it's great that all of those comments that you make and responses to technical queries are publicly available for everyone to see as well. So there's so much work that goes into this. Um, The other part of that, obviously, it's very altruistic, but I was quite surprised that even at the federal government level, there's just really not a lot of funding to even support volunteers to do their jobs. Because as you say, there's a travel allowance, but it really only covers standard economy flights, basic accommodation and meals, um, and only associated with attending the four compulsory in-person meetings, which to me, I mean, it is a little bit surprising that you're putting so much time and personal effort into that, but at the federal government level, Perhaps there is room for, in the future, more funding and more support for scientists here in Australia to be able to contribute to such a global effort. Yeah, and that's something that has been fed back. Um, I mean, I fed that back because at the time as well, I was teaching as I've got over 200 students enrolled in my courses and just having a little bit of teaching support to be able to relieve me of certain duties. um, I think they could, they could, that could be... um, addressed because it is extremely important that we do have our expertise represented and it's particularly important for Australians as well where the vast majority of people working on IPCC reports are from the northern hemisphere let's be honest yeah so there's a bias in terms of the, the coverage and so if you if you're literally not at the table just a whole series of research papers that you know, a European might not be aware of, but I'm aware of because I'm going to all the local conferences and I'm at the meetings and I know what's happening in our region. So it makes a lot of sense to try and have a very inclusive process, but that can be difficult. So for Australians, I think 
there was only around about 9% of people were from the Southwest Pacific, which includes Australia. So we really are talking about a very limited representation. But obviously in a country like Australia, we have major impacts in terms of whether in climate extremes. And so it is really important that our science was represented and distilled and integrated into that report. And I know that writing has been a part of your life for quite a while and you've written essays and, and obviously a previous book. So expressing yourself in that way is something that must feel more natural to you than perhaps for, for some other scientists I'm gathering. But you do say that when you wrote a particular long form essay in July 2020 that you were afraid to publish a personal piece, fearing that your colleagues would think less of you for sharing your emotional response to your scientific work in the climate field. It's something that I really was interested in because you make a really excellent argument about comparing um, medical doctors and, you know, we praise them for having a good bedside manner and empathy and showing their humanity in those scenarios. But when it comes to climate science, there seems to not have been a space for that ability to explore our emotional human kind of instinctive response to what is a, an existential threat. And I wondered if you could reflect on that component, you know, the the kind of sense of, I don't know, grappling with how you um, balance that, expressing yourself and a truly human response and also still engaging with that very hard, rational science. Yeah, another really good question. I think part of the reason why I think a lot of people are, particularly in a country like Australia, where the conversation has been very adversarial. So people have been looking to undermine the climate science and the climate scientists themselves. And so around about 10 years ago, I was subjected to a lot of attacks on my work and legal requests for hundreds of my emails and correspondence with colleagues through the Freedom of Information Act. And so it's this intimidation of scientists that was, was really, really difficult when we were really in the thick of the climate wars and people were looking to say, well, no, it's all just natural variability, nothing to see here. We can continue to burn fossil fuels unabated uh, for as long as we like. And so in a country like Australia, where we are the largest exporter of coal and liquefied natural, natural gas, we have a lot of vested interests who want to see that continue. The scientists and the science is, is, is really undermined by a group of people who are looking to discredit our work. And so for me to be coming out and saying something emotional about my work, that just feels like I'm giving more fuel to the fire. But at this point, the situation is so bad that I actually don't care anymore. I feel like it's really important that people can see that the people who are closest to this issue are really, really worried. So, for instance, when the Great Barrier Reef was being bleached several times and we've actually lost 50% of the Great Barrier Reef since 2015, and I saw colleagues like Professor Terry Hughes, who's one of the leading experts in coral reef science, he started to really uh, convey his deep sadness and uh, on, on platforms like Twitter uh, and it made me realise that I'm not the only one that's feeling really concerned about the, the death of the largest living organism on the planet. Many of us actually care and have a deep emotional response to this. And then I realized that, you know, you can still be rational and logical and all of those sorts of things that we bring to our science. And, and that's, that's what we do. That's, as I just outlined in the process earlier, I mean, our work is, is extremely rigorous, but that doesn't stop me from being a human being and responding to the work and the, and the implications of my work. And so I think it's disingenuous to pretend that we don't have an emotional response to this. 
So for me, the Black Summer bushfires were this extraordinary event where we saw ecosystems transformed in the space of a single bushfire season. We saw about 53% of Gondwanan-era rainforests burn in this country, and they are relics from the past. They've been around since the age of dinosaurs. There's only 1% of these subtropical rainforests left in the world, and we have a swathe of them here on the east coast of Australia. So to see half of them burnt in a single bushfire season is just horrific. I mean, it's the simple facts on this are just, it's really horrific. And for me, just seeing that encroach on the places and the people that I love, I just felt like I had to sound the alarm. I really felt like I had to make my own personal response public so that it could help other people find language around it and also find some kind of camaraderie in that because many people do feel this and they do feel deeply upset and and stressed about what we're seeing unfolding in the world. And I think it it is a, a really rational and normal response to be concerned because I think something would have to be quite wrong with you if you weren't concerned about the fact that we're destabilizing the Earth's climate and the planetary conditions that we need to live on this on, on our Earth. And so it is a really big thing to come to terms with. And I think I just felt like I had to be honest about that. And so I am. And as a writer, I guess I'm, I'm also a huge reader. And the work I respond to is when there's, there's raw emotion on the page. And so for me, I try to bring that, that idea of literary nonfiction into my work to help people sort of take the reader by the hand and help them sort of move through this difficult emotional terrain, but with me as a guide and, and sharing my own uh, experience in, in the hope that it might help people feel uh, that they have a companion through the dark. Beautifully said. That's exactly how it feels when you read the book. And I think you do need a companion because the way that you uh, distill this information so well, it is very upsetting to read about if you care about the world and nature around us. And that's something that I certainly feel about the environment. And, you know, we cover the Great Barrier Reef on this show very regularly. I wanted to pick up on a quote that you reference a bit later in the book when you're talking and referencing about shying away from difficult emotions. You reference uh, the poet T.S. Eliot, who said that humankind cannot bear very much reality. And um, it does make me think and it made me reflect that we're really witnessing that right now with the coronavirus pandemic because the majority of the population would like to put their head in the sand. Mm. Public health scientists and doctors aren't, the majority of them at least, but they're really being drowned out like climate scientists had been in the past around the science of COVID. And I guess I was reflecting on the fact that personally for me, and it may be different for others, but when I know the science and I finally understand something about the science, I feel more empowered that, okay, well, I know the real true reality of the situation now. What can I do about it? What is realistic? What is practical? And what works? What is scientifically based in, you know, evidence and is proven to be effective in this situation, aka mask wearing, ventilation, air purifiers, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking the parallels to climate change are quite similar in the sense that for me at least, Yes, you feel this despair, but also if you truly understand the gravity of the situation, hopefully then you go, okay, well, I've been confronted with the worst thing that could happen, which is absolutely horrific. Now what can we do about it? 
what are the science-based interventions that work that we know are going to work and i wondered do you have a similar response and do you think that that's a common response or maybe a less common response because i i don't know i just looking at the pandemic in the way that everyone would like to think that it's not happening mm-hmm. yeah i just wonder if there are parallels between that and climate change right now yeah i think that's a really interesting parallel and i and i think that you know when you are diagnosed with a medical condition you need to have the facts in front of you you don't want the doctor not telling it to you straight, but you really have to have all the information on the table so then you can make a decision about what kind of intervention. Is there something you can do? How bad is it? All that sort of stuff. And, and I think that all of us would like climate change to disappear. Trust me, it would make my life a lot easier <laughs> and I have a lot more time back in my day. So that, that would help. But unfortunately, we're not in that situation. We are in this situation which is global, it's accelerating, and it's, um, it's really widespread. And so I guess the reality of that is just that that step one is that we have to just accept that this is what's happening. And I think the pandemic, it's, it's, an interesting, um, it, it's an interesting parallel because I think a lot of people are just tired of it. They don't really want to do the things that, you know, are in the, in the interest of public health. And I think that, that a lot of the, the experts in the field uh, are pretty stressed out about that, to be honest. I think they would like to see better public health measures in place, but politically it doesn't seem to be palatable. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, right? so, it sure does. Yeah, and so, but I guess it comes back down to people and the social mm. license. So whether or not we provide the social license for these things to happen. So if people are not wanting to do the right thing by the collective community, then politicians are going to feel like it's unpalatable, they can't do it, and so they start to relax the situation. And I guess with the climate debate, what we're doing now in this country is better than what we were doing just even six months ago in terms of having a stronger target, but it's not nearly enough. It's not enough to save the Great Barrier Reef. It's not enough to stop us from having 50 degree summer temperatures in our capital cities, and it isn't enough to really put the brakes on. So while it's good, Mm. if in the same breath we're still opening up fossil fuel projects, which are going to contribute to the problem, if we want to burn fossil fuels to the bitter end, then really... It just goes against what all the world's leading scientists are saying we need to do, which is keep fossil fuels in the ground, reduce emissions immediately and start to stabilise the Earth's temperature. Because really one of the key take-home messages of the IPCC report is in fact that how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands. Now, sometimes this gets lost out there where people start to latch on to bits and pieces. And this is where that non-expert commentary can be unhelpful where people say, well, there's runaway climate change or all these methane bombs going off and there's no hope and, you know, there's nothing we can do about the problem. And the evidence just does not bear that out. And so I actually spend a bit of time in the book talking about abrupt climate change and, and all sorts of things so people understand what the scientific community actually have reported on this issue rather than it being extrapolated out from people's um, sort of lack of understanding of the, of the fundamental science. So I guess there's there's a real need for people to first and foremost get their head around the situation, which is part of the purpose of humanity's moment is to, is to really give people the grounding to feel confident in engaging in these conversations and feeling like they know enough. I hope that I help join the dots for people who might know a little bit, but maybe not everything and they want to be able to understand the actual science but then it's moving into a whole other realm which is it is not science at all which is this sort of social and political change which I think is really exciting and something that we just saw 
in the Australian federal election uh, earlier this year, where when you get enough people that are switching on and waking up and creating this critical mass, you can actually shift the political system. And so we've done that. We've got a government now that has uh, legislated a 43% target, which is really good. As I said, it's a really, really good start, but we need to do better. And that's where our independents and our Greens and others are really stepping up to, to really put pressure on the major parties to do better. And I think that is, is a really exciting thing that people should keep in mind as we move forward, that what you do in terms of your vote and your political power and your consumer power ends up either creating or removing the social license for these things to continue. So I actually find a lot of hope in that. Uh, realising that we have hit this social tipping point here in Australia, but we need to keep pushing. Indeed, yeah. But I did want to make sure we touched on a little bit of the science that you draw out. We definitely won't even get anywhere near what you do still in this book. I hope that's why people do get to read it because there's so much in here. But the things that I really highlighted and that I've been curious about and wanting to understand better but honestly couldn't find the best communicated resource for that was actually about the Arctic and glaciers and melting of ice shelves, etc. This is something which I've seen the tweets from the scientists about. It sounds absolutely terrifying, but I've never really felt that I've truly been able to understand the full picture, not only of what is currently happen- happening, but what are some of the likely scenarios under each different setting, you know, the policy settings what degrees of warming there might be in which time frame. And that is something which I found really useful in this book from you. And I wondered if we could perhaps just touch on some of that science that you explain around the Arctic sea ice and, you know, why you use that especially. I think you do, you know, give a good focus and good attention to that particular area as an example. Yeah, sure. So the Arctic's extremely important for keeping the Earth's temperature stable. And when we start to see warming, we start to see the melting of these ice sheets, and then you get you start to see fresh water just pouring into the ocean, and that can also alter ocean circulation. And then you end up getting this warmer ocean that's around the ice sheet, which then starts to melt the edges of the ice sheet, and then you get this positive feedback loop. And with some of the projections, even with the sort of lower end, the lower end scenarios, you, you, you're looking at sort of five degrees of warming in coming decades, which is really substantial. But at the higher levels of warming by the end of the century, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy to even say it, but you're looking at about 19 degrees of warming in that part of the world, which is a complete reconfiguration of that ice sheet. It would start to disappear and then you start to see a change in ocean circulation and effectively you're unleashing sea level rise that will be with us for millennia. And so that's what the IPCC refers to as irreversible change because once you start to destabilize the ice sheets and we start to see that between about two and three degrees uh, above pre-industrial levels and once you basically sort of tip that process off it it just starts to uh, unfold in ways that are are really really difficult for, for humans to be able to adapt to and this is what we're trying to avoid right so the ice sheets are really important because they lock up a lot of water and they keep they keep the planet in, in, a, in a stable condition because uh, really what, what circulates the whole planet's climate is the differences between the cool polar areas and the very warm tropical areas. So if you start to see a warming of the cool polar areas, that, that 
what they call a thermal gradient. So the temperature between the poles and the equator starts to starts to weaken. And then you start to see this intrusion of warmer conditions into those Arctic regions. So some of your listeners might remember uh, last year where we saw 50 degrees in the Arctic Circle around Canada, which was extraordinary to see, but it's because these patterns of atmospheric circulation are starting to meander and wander because of this change in the thermal gradient between the equator and the poles. And so the polar regions are really important for that alone, just for the atmospheric circulation, but they're really, really important in terms of sea level. And once you start to trigger long-term melting of Greenland and the West Antarctic ice sheet, then you start looking at really major sea level rise. So in the orders of multiple meters of sea level rise over thousands of years. And what that does is basically put a lot of people in harm's way. So currently we've got about a quarter of a billion people that live just two meters above sea level. And as global warming continues, that number in terms of the exposure of people to extreme sea level events and and sea level rise increases to about a billion people. And in, in my book, I actually talk about the implications of that sort of thing playing out because you start to displace people from their homes and then you're unleashing large-scale numbers of refugees. So right now in Pakistan, some listeners would remember that about a third of the country is currently underwater from a really intense monsoon season. And so what happens to those people when they can't return to their homes or the following monsoon is also really intensive? This is what we're talking about. It's this destabilisation of the seasonal pattern that we have sort of relied on historically. And that starts to have a really big impact on the way that people can either live or not in those areas. And the IPCC actually say beyond two degrees, it becomes impossible effectively for many parts of the world uh, to be able to adapt to that sort of level of global warming. So right now, in terms of the um, emission uh, pledges that are on the table with the Paris Agreement, we are looking at about two to four degrees of global warming with the currently implemented policies. But if you look at the net zero emission targets that are, that have been put forward, you're looking at about two degrees. So still, it's not enough. Mm. It's simply not enough. And the science says that those high levels of warming are really unmanageable in terms of human societies to be able to adapt to it. But the science also says that if we stabilise emissions, temperature also stabilises and we can really start to to bring things back. So we may get a bit of overshoot of the the Paris Agreement target, certainly the lower end, so the 1.5 degrees. But we want to really avoid that because, I mean, the implications of that I talk about in great detail in my book. But I guess the key message that I got from working on the IPCC report is, is still how bad things get is still very much in our hands and that the apocalypse does not need to be a done deal. It isn't a done deal, um, but the political response is still inadequate. Mm, There is a huge difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees and the implications of that. And then, of course, the other, you know, latter degrees, if you're going up and up and up, depending on the global response and the policies that are put in place. I just wanted to touch on one other component of the Arctic, which was permafrost, because we see a lot of these articles in the news about especially permafrost in Siberia, Russia. This is an area that has a large kind of area of permafrost. Interestingly, you were looking at the projections for the Arctic that are in the IPCC report 
and you said that carbon and methane emissions from permafrost melt and Arctic wildfires are not fully accounted for by most models, including those used in the latest IPCC report. This is because of limited observations available for these remote and underground regions and the incredible difficulty of simulating complex processes like abrupt thawing of permafrost and changes in vegetation in models. So essentially you then say that this makes the climate change projections for the Arctic Ocean some of the most confronting results of the entire IPCC assessment report as they are likely to be an underestimate. And then you provide a whole range of different brackets of these um, estimates that are in that report. And I just wondered if you could reflect on that particular observation and the flow-on effects, the repercussions of that observation and something like permafrost being so unknown, I guess, in terms of the ability to project for what could happen. Yeah, well, I, I guess I, I try to be really upfront about some of the gaps that we have in the science because I think it's important for people to understand that the, the climate system is really, really complex and we have imperfect estimates. So the same way that, for instance, imagine if you were trying to simulate a human body using a computer code. So you've got an equation that might represent the leg and another one, the brain, and another one, you know, the heart. It's actually really complex and it's probably not going to be entirely correct, right? So it's, it's a simulation. It is an approximation of what we understand and it's based on the underlying observations that we have. And so with, with permafrost, it underlies about a quarter of the Northern Hemisphere's land surface. But because they're underground areas, it's very difficult to have precise measurements of exactly uh, these, these, the amount that's there, how deep it is, and so on and so forth. So that, that's a lot of scientific research that's quite complex. And then when you actually try and put that into a computer model, again, the processes involved in that in terms of parameterizing those sorts of gases into the, um, the equations is really complex. And so I'm, I'm upfront about that because it's still an area that's emerging in terms of the science. There's been a lot of really good progress, but still it's in, in imperfectly modelled. Uh, just the same way that, say, trying to to model the human brain would be imperfectly mm. modelled. Okay, so we have real limits, and, and maybe one day we'll be able to overcome them with technology in terms of improving our ability to represent these things. But maybe not. So we have to just accept that they are what they are. They're imperfect, but they give us an understanding. But why it's important to try and improve this area of science is that the Arctic permafrost contains twice the amount of carbon that's currently stored in the Earth's atmosphere. So there's a huge amount of carbon that's trapped in these frozen soils uh, and, and these, in these really cold parts of the world. So it's, it's incredibly important that we do get a handle on that, but it's complex science. And when you stop and think about the number of people that work in science, there's not so many of us, right? Mm, so yeah. there's not so many of us. It's, it's complex work that takes many, many years. We're doing our best, of course, but I guess it's to say and be upfront that there are still uncertainties. And that's why the IPCC also for the first time puts forward um, a whole range of low likelihood, high impact scenarios, which includes things like, well, what happens if we start to see some of these more dire ends of the projections play out? And so that's actually an acknowledgement that there's some things we don't know. And even though there might be low likelihood because we can't be very certain of that because of the underlying science, 
but we still try and and basically give people a bit of an understanding in terms of these sort of high mission storylines, what what can actually play out. So it is really complex stuff. Uh, the science is still evolving, as you might imagine, um, and we're upfront about that. I think we're one of probably the very few disciplines that are upfront about that. Um, yeah. Because I think it's important that people understand what we do and don't know. And we saw that play out in the pandemic as well, where we had epidemiologists and other experts trying to explain the things we do and don't know, for instance, about the vaccine. And then you have to just make a call based on the best available evidence that you have in front of you at the time, because that's all you can do. Until further notice, it's going to take a long time before we really realise the impacts of certain vaccines and, and so on and so forth. But we have to make the best possible decision at the time. I think that's all we can expect of our scientific community. One thing that certainly stands out in this book is the interconnectedness of the earth, the different systems on earth, and you go through that in a lot of detail, which we won't hear. But you say that once a system has crossed into a different state, it stays there for a very long time, sometimes even permanently and you give the example of Greenland and the ice sheet, and if it passed a tipping point this century that leads to its complete disintegration, well, it may not come back anytime soon. It, it all depends. So although we should realise that the Earth will adapt in certain situations, there are areas where these systems may not adapt and it may take, you know, 100,000 years for, you know, the ice sheet to come back. And this is, you know, a reality that I, I felt was very helpful to understand the kind of complexity and nuance of the situation. But it also highlighted to me that not only is there interconnectedness between systems, but clearly all of our countries are interconnected. We're all part of one earth, given that we're all here relying on the same atmosphere and uh, systems. And it you know, made me think of, I guess, the conclusions of your book, which is looking at other countries and political change and social uh, change. You give Denmark as an example and compare it to Australia, especially on fossil fuel projects where Australia, as you've already said, is still planning to have new oil, gas and coal projects here. And I wonder if you could just close out this conversation reflecting on some of the cultural and political change and areas that have given you hope, because that is part of the title of this book. What do you think might give Australians, especially here who are despairing about the fact that we're not making further progress on those types of issues, what does give you hope? Well, the first thing I would say is that you get what you deserve in the sense that the political leaders that we have are ones that we voted in. And so it's easy to point the figure and say, oh, this person's not doing good enough or whatever. But, you know, firstly, there are people that can step up and engage in the political system. And we've seen that happen here in Australia with independents and a range of green candidates and others. So if you're really passionate about something like this, then, then you know, you could actually engage in that political system. That's the first thing I would say. Secondly, not all of us can do that, right? But we can get behind the people that are willing to engage in the political system and we can either provide them with our support or not. And so I think that there is an enormous power in that, collective power, and we saw that in the federal election. So as that played out in, as I was doing the very final sort of copy editing of my book, it was really nice to be able to go back to this chapter on politics that I wrote and be able to update that and say, well, we actually saw a social tipping point here in Australia. And we also saw one in the US when um, Donald Trump was also voted out. So these things happen because people step up and say enough is enough. So I guess that's the first thing I would say really around that is that removing the social license for 
the destruction of our world lies with us. It's in our hands. And when we actually stop and think about human history, it is effectively this tug of war for social justice. So these struggles are not new in a sense that we've seen struggles, for instance, in the 1960s with the American Civil Rights Movement. We're seeing a lot of conversation right now about gender equality, and that's an ongoing conversation that's come about from the, the early suffragette days to now where we're looking at gender pay gaps and and, and ways for uh, to improve inclusion of women in the workforce and so on. So these, these things are ongoing and it's part of human history. What is different about the climate crisis, I guess, is that it's planetary in scale and it, it, it's really, really urgent. So people have been pushing on this for a long time, but we, we're clearly not there yet in terms of that social tipping point. But I do write about for instance, the school strikers, the movement that Greta Thunberg uh, really activated and how that has really just rippled through our communities where the young people all around the world want to see this change. And so I, I do feel that this social p- tipping point is on the way. And I, pr- I quote some research that says that you only need about 25% of people to, to switch a social norm, which I think is really exciting. So you don't actually need to get everyone on board. That was really mm. the take-home message there, that when there's a, enough of a critical mass, other people will just follow the leader effectively. And so once we have enough people that say to our politicians, no, we want renewable energy, we want this legislated, we want subsidies, we don't want any more fossil fuel projects, we want to restore our ecosystems, we want better public transport and all those other things, that all adds up. And there's enormous power in that. And so I guess for me, my way through this content when I was writing this book was also just this belief that inherently human beings are good. We want to do the right thing. And that altruism I experienced at the IPCC level is also reflected, for instance, in the in the, um, the healthcare sector where people working around the clock during the COVID pandemic or our firefighters that go in to protect our precious places uh, during emergency periods like the, the Black Summer bushfires. There are good people everywhere. So we can choose how we want to turn up and show up in this moment. And it is a pivotal moment in human history. And we need to stop and think about how we want to contribute, whatever we can do. Everyone has different capacity. So it could be big or small, what you choose to do. And I talk about that and I talk about the social and cultural change that's needed. So I hope that people who are interested in this topic or scared of this topic um, have the courage to pick up my book to read it, to let me take them by the hand through this content. I honestly think they will find something that is is genuine hope. It isn't this sort of Pollyanna view of the world. That's not me. Um, I mean, I struggle with depression myself, so I'm not really the glass half full kind of person for a range of different sort of personal reasons. And also probably from the work that I do, it's quite confronting being in front of this material every day. So the hope that I provide is, is like a deep dive hard one insight into what I think might help people and help them with their conversations. And I'm sure what I hope is that this sparks conversations so we can start to have more and more ideas and more and more people thinking about it. This is just my my thinking on the topic uh, and I hope it helps in some way. Thank you so much, Joelle. I hope that people do pick up your book and do exactly that because I've got a lot out of it myself and from this conversation as well. The book is called Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope, out through Black Ink. Thank you so much, Dr. Joelle Gerges, for joining us today. My pleasure, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.